Well, who is this strange-looking fellow up here? My name is Father Matt Ainsley. Uh, I'm happy to be with you this morning. Uh, I am the associate priest over at Church of the Ascension on the southwest side of Orlando. And I'm also the prospective vicar of All Souls Episcopal Church, uh, which is going to be a church plant of the Diocese of Central Florida, actually in concert with the Church of the Ascension. Uh, that's going to be launched out in the Horizon West area. So if you are familiar with the 429, that's on the western side of Orlando. That corridor five years ago was basically nothing but orange groves. But now there's something out there. There's people that need to be- hear about Jesus. So we're excited that the diocese uh, and the Church of the Ascension has answered the call to expand the kingdom of God in that area. So I covet your prayers I'm also, this is my real claim to fame, friends with your rector, Father Cameron. And I met him about five years ago at Neshota. Uh, Bishop Brewer really likes Cameron. Uh, of course he does. He's like, hey, you need, you need to meet this guy when you go up to Neshota named Cameron McMillan. And I did, and we became friends. And somehow we got invited out to free sushi in Wisconsin, of all places, by the canon to the ordinary of the Diocese of Fond du Lac, right? You were there, right? Hannah was there. We got so, and so over a meal, we became friends, and it is a joy and really a privilege to be with you this morning. If you remember, I was here uh, in October, and I'm glad that I was invited back. So today, we continue in this Epiphany Tide with a gospel which further reveals that Jesus of Nazareth was and is the Messiah and the Lord of the world. You see, the miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee is an epiphanous event. It's an event wherein Christ is manifested to both Jews and Gentiles alike. And whereas the gospel said this morning, Jesus, quote, revealed his glory. And Jesus, in this text, he reveals himself as the new Adam and as the one commencing a work of new creation. In the Gospels, really throughout the whole New Testament, but in the Gospels, but particularly in the Gospel of John, the book of Genesis is the back, the backstory. So much so that it wouldn't be a misnomer to call the Gospel of John Genesis 2. Genesis 2.0. Because it's always in the background. And it's so important, and the people at Ascension are probably sick of me saying this, that if you really want to understand the New Testament, and if you really want to understand what's going on in the Gospel, you have to get into the Old Testament. And particularly, you have to understand the Genesis and the Exodus story, because it's constantly being referenced. It's constantly being alluded to. Think about it. Genesis 1-1, what does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, how does the gospel of John begin? In very much the same way. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And this parallel that we see so clearly in the prologue of John, this retelling of Genesis, if you will, occurs not just in the prologue, but throughout the entire book of John. Because the ministry of Jesus and the gospel of John are all about a new Genesis, a new beginning, a new creation wrought by Jesus Christ. 
Jesus was the agent of the original creation. What does scripture say? This is in John. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus was the agent of creation at the beginning. And Jesus is the agent of new creation. John writes that the turning of water into wine is, quote, the first of his signs. He notes that. And then in chapter 4, with the curing of the nobleman's son in chapter 4, he notes that it's the second sign. Scholars have noted that if you read through the Gospel of John and you count up the signs, you'll come to seven. Here they are for your edification in rapid succession. I think it's pretty cool. Seven signs. One, the changing of water into wine, which is our study today. Two, the curing of the nobleman's son. Three, the healing of the paralytic. Four, the feeding of the 5,000. Five, Jesus walking on water. Six, opening the eyes of a blind man. And then finally, the raising of Lazarus from the dead is the seventh sign. But there's more. There is, if you will, an eighth sign, the resurrection of our Lord. The resurrection is the eighth sign on the eighth day. That is the first day of the new week, the first day of the new creation. In Genesis, it began in a garden. And in the resurrection, it began again in a garden. Read John 20. Who does Mary Magdalene mistake Jesus for? The gardener. The parallel with Eden, though rhetorically subtle, could hardly be more striking. So understanding the gospel of John, I've taken a few minutes of introduction, to understand the gospel of John as Genesis 2, as the new Genesis of a gospel about new creation wrought by Jesus Christ. Let us go back to John 2 with that in the forefront of our mind. So it makes perfect sense in today's gospel that Jesus' first sign, his first act of new creation, would be performed in the context of a wedding. Scripture begins... And ends with a marriage. In Genesis, the marriage of a man and a woman, of Adam and Eve. In Revelation, the marriage of heaven and earth. Revelation chapter 21. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Marriage is a living, breathing symbol of God's goal. And God's goal is God with us. Emmanuel. 
He wants to dwell with us and in us. Thus, the sacrament of marriage points to the marriage of heaven and earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It points to the nuptials of Christ and the church. It points to that goal of union of man with God. And so Jesus' miracle at the wedding of Cana in Galilee is a sign that God is accomplishing his purposes. It's a sign that the Eden Project, which has gotten quite off track, has not been abandoned. It's a sign that as man and woman are made one flesh in holy matrimony, so shall Christ and his church be united. So shall heaven and earth become one. As man and woman are made one flesh in marriage, so shall Christ and his church be united. We are the church. We are the mystical body of Christ on earth through the death of Jesus. In the sacrament of baptism, we have been united with him. And our union with Christ means, as we talk about the church, as we talked about in our educational class the gifts within that are given to the body of Christ and the relationship of the members of the body of Christ. Our union with Christ means, or at least it should mean, unity with one another in practice. We are in fellowship with one another, but by the power of the Spirit, we are to walk and to live as such. What Paul does so often in his letters and what he's doing uh, in our epistle today is that he is describing the identity of the Christian. That is the position of the Christian. What by grace through Christ, by the Spirit, God has done in us and for us. And then he urges his disciples to be in practice what they are in position. In other words, to live out their identity. A great example of this is in Colossians chapter 3, where Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Why? Why? What is the ground of that commandment? Well, he tells us in verse 3, For you have died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God. So your position is one who is dead to this world and alive to Christ. Therefore, you should act like it. He does the very same thing in Romans 6. To give you another example of when Paul is expounding the grace of God in his epistle to the Romans... He gets a little concerned that, okay, they're going to misunderstand what grace is and just think because God is so gracious, they can just go on doing whatever they want. And he poses a rhetorical question. He says, can we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he grounds his emphatic no, by no means, he says, in their identity. He says, we have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? There's been a change of identity. So here in 1 Corinthians, as we can, we connect 
the mystery of Christ and his church from our gospel of this goal of new creation, of this this marriage of heaven and earth, this union of mankind with God. And we we and then we look at okay, what are the implications for us as the church if we've been united to Christ and therefore put into intimate relationship with one another as the various members of the body? Paul is emphasizing our identity. He's emphasizing that relationship that we have with one another in Christ and how that should impact our labor together in the kingdom of God. He says again, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There are a variety of services, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them and everyone. Same spirit, same Lord, same God. Our unity with Christ means unity with one another. The two are inextricably linked. And when we talk about mission, and we talk about having revivals in the diocese, and we talk about evangelism, we need to understand that our witness and our effectiveness in mission as the church is bolstered by our practical unity. John thirteen thirty five. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And our mission, which is bolstered by our practical unity, is the same as Jesus's mission. It's new creation. It's the marriage of heaven and earth. Jesus said to his disciples in John 20, as the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. The church is the means by which the kingdom of God comes on earth as in heaven. We are the body of Christ empowered not by our own self-will, but by the very Spirit of God to take forward Jesus' project of new creation, of the marriage of heaven and earth, of the coming of the kingdom of God in this place. So God has created you and gifted you as an individual to serve as a member, that is a body part of the one body of Christ. He's called you to be a herald, an announcer of new creation, to be a witness to the eventual marriage of heaven and earth. What a high calling, brothers and sisters. It's almost overwhelming, and it would be overwhelming if we didn't have the spirit, that the way that we live as the church is to be a living, breathing picture, a living, breathing answer to the question, what would it look like if God's kingdom came on earth as in heaven? And again, it's not something we do alone by ourselves. We need the other parts of the body. It's not something we do in our own power. We do it together as the one body of Christ in the power of the spirit, according 
to the wisdom of the scriptures and in the strength given to us in the Holy Eucharist. You see, we drink the wine of the wedding feast of the Lamb, the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. And as Eucharistic people, we are equipped and energized by the very body, blood, soul, divinity of our Lord to carry out the mission of our church. As we prayed in the collect, brothers and sisters, may we be this morning throughout this epiphany tide and evermore those who are illumined by word and sacraments that we may shine with the radiance of Christ's glory that he may be known, worshipped, and obeyed to the ends of the earth. May we be this morning signs and witnesses and agents of new creation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.